Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. It's good to have you here. If we've not met yet, my name is Luke. I'm one of the, the pastors here at Legacy, and I'm glad to get to teach today. Um, we're going to be in Acts 8, if you have your Bible or you're using a device. By the way, if you were with us yesterday for our pie contest, slash egg hunt, slash baptism, um, thanks for coming. That was a lot of fun. It just reminded me again how much I enjoy building church with my friends. Um, that was just a fun moment for us to laugh and make some memories together and to celebrate a couple baptisms. That's a lot of fun. So Acts 8 is going to be where we're at as we continue our march through the story. It's not really a narrative history of the church as much as it is a history of the church's mission. And we're going to find ourselves in a little bit of a fascinating passage, I think, today. Um, but before we jump there, there is this phrase that I hear often and I can't get enough of it. The phrase is, and you've heard it all, there are two kinds of people in this world, right? Which has become a meme, and I can't get enough of the meme. It's awesome. So I'm going to put a couple of them up there just to celebrate this meme. There are two kinds of people in this world. You see where it's going, right? Apple, Android, other nine. It could also be said rebels and sheep, right? That's what that could be said. The same thing, just playing. Don't email me. Go to the next one. There are two kinds of people in this world. If you cannot see that, <laughs> one alarm versus five alarms. I am totally the person on the right. Go ahead and go to the next one. There are two kinds of people in this world with how they handle their ketchup and how they eat their pizza. You're starting to get the drift, right? We're starting to feel this phrase out. Go to the next one. Oh, I love this one. Two kinds of people in this world. <laughs> That's such an awesome one. I'm totally the person on the right. That's me getting bored after six seconds of trying to do this thing called math, right? Go to the next one. There are two kinds of people when Christmas decorations start appearing in shops. Buddy the Elf, and so it begins. And you all know I am the person on the right with no apologies. All right, go to the next one. I think this is, oh, this is my favorite. This is my favorite. Listen, if that's you on the right, shame on you, shame on you, and triple shame on you. It stresses me out just to see that. Just to see that, I get stressed out. No, that's, I could, I could probably do these all day. Um, but we love these things because we love being in a group. It makes us feel a little less alone. It makes us feel a little bit more known. And I think we also kind of like putting people in groups um, that's why you can't get through a high school movie or a movie set in high school. Can't make it through the whole 90-minute movie without there being the obligatory cafeteria scene where they systematically stereotype everybody from the nerds and the jocks and the whatevers, you know. It depends on what generation we're in, but we love to just categorize people. Why do we do this? I think it helps for us to see ourselves in a certain way, see others in a certain way, it helps us interact with each other, right? If I know where I fit and I know where you fit, then I know how to, how to deal with you. I know how to speak with you, interact with you. It's just basic social intelligence is all it is. So if you came to me and you were wearing a shirt that say, may the fourth be with you, right? And some of you are like, why is that a big deal? See, you're already in the other group because you don't even know what that means. It's a play on may the force be with you. So May 4th, everyone celebrates that. If you come up with that shirt on, I can't give you any of my energy. I'm not going to debate the Mandalorian with you. I'm not going to talk about multiverse. 
horse. I'm not that guy, right? I can't be in that group. Any more than if you rolled up and your tailgate was wrapped in mossy oak, I can't talk about the price of hunting permits with you or anything like that. You'd smell it after a little while that I can maybe be all things to all people, as Paul says, for about seven minutes, right? But 10 minutes is a little bit harder for me because I know my group. I know what makes it easy for me and who it's easy to talk to. At its best, this is just simple social intelligence. At its worst, however, it can create walls. And it can smell a little bit like racism, right? Your group, my group. By the way, racism is something that we've tried to define repeatedly from the stage, what it really is. Racism is nothing more than deep insecurity over personal value and wealth. It's much more that than it is hatred, right? What's going on in the heart of somebody that is struggling with racism is that I lack value in this world, worth in this world. And so I'm not going to get it from Jesus. So the only other option I have to gain personal value and wealth is to push your group down that you belong in so that the group I'm in rises to the top, right? That's the basic heartbeat behind something like racism, which is why we have found it forever in human history. It's not an American invention. It's been around for thousands of years. Racism is simply a dissatisfaction and self-value, and only the gospel cures that disease. I'd stand on any stage and debate with anybody ad nauseum, people much smarter than me. I am determined and resolved that the gospel is the only cure for something like racism. So this passage is incredible and helpful. Because the group dynamics we see developing in the young church is a lot more racism than it is just meme, right? Jesus is going to glue some people together that have a lot more differences than just how they roll toothpaste up and how they handle an inbox. They're going to have some deep, deep differences that have traveled over generations. This is a pivotal passage also because it starts to unpack something that Jesus has already prophesied. Back in Acts 1.8, Jesus said something very, very interesting. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so today, we get to see that Pentecost began in Jerusalem, but is now crossing the tracks, and it's ending up in Samaria. And listen, if there were ever two kinds of people in this world, they're about to mix. They're about to mix. So let's look at our passage today. This is in Acts 8. We're going to be in verse 4 picking up where we left off last week. And this is going to be a passage that if you have eyes to see it, and if you have trust in the word of God, you will see Christ more clearly, more compellingly in a passage just like this. This is the word of the Lord. It says in chapter 8, verse 4, Now those who were scattered, remember there's persecution that's happening. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Remember, Philip is one of the, the, the people that were serving widows alongside Stephen, who was just stoned. Right? And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him 
from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who had come down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Okay, let's stop right there. I think with all the stuff that's going on that is high value in a passage like this, one of the things I love the most is that we're seeing ordinary amateur Christians spreading the gospel across cultural boundaries. The main idea is that there is a cross-cultural transmission of the gospel. But what I think flavors it and makes it helpful for me is that they're just amateurs. And not only that, this is because of persecution. So nothing that is happening is ideal, right? Nothing. At least not for these people personally. It happens to be very ideal, though, for the expansion of the gospel. Which just leads me to continually believe that there's no substitute for ordinary amateur missions. Nothing, nothing is as good as that in ordinary, non-ideal settings. I mean, you take all the compilation of all of your broken attempts to tell somebody about Jesus. You're chattering about the gospel, not even putting complete sentences together, full of distractions, a little bit on Tuesday, a little bit in six months. All of your broken attempts to bring the best you can to people, that compounds over time. And there really is no substitute for imperfect people being missionaries to an imperfect city. But waiting for the perfect time and the perfect conditions, that's a death sentence for mission because perfect's not going to come. We imagine that it will. It never happens. It never happens. And what I love about this passage is how imperfectly everything is happening. Nothing is ideal. There's nothing ideal about this passage. And listen, there are a lot of questions in this text that that scholars get kind of wrapped around the axle regarding um, how some of the details are kind of coming out in the fabric of this text. And I want to hit just a couple of the high notes, um, but I want to do those as a way of kind of getting them out of the way and focusing on the main idea, right? One big question that this text generates, and it's not a small question, is why is the gospel moving to Samaria even a big deal? Like, who cares? We read it in 2022, and it just looks like it's going from one place to the next. It doesn't look like it's that notable at all. But you've got to know that there's been deep hostility between those people groups for over 1,000 years. That's four times the age of our country. That's a long time. 
That's long enough for generations to hate another people group, and they don't even really know why. But just the generation before them told them to, and the generation before them told them that that's not a people that we talk to or do business with. It has just been residual generation after generation. You see, when Solomon died, which was the third king of Israel, the nation of Israel had been pulled into two, and the northern kingdom eventually was escorted off into exile. Now, the nation that escorted them out and exiled them left some of the people, the elderly, those who were not educated, um, what they would consider one of the edges of the bell curve, not the choicest of people. And then they didn't just come in and re-inhabit the area. They brought in other conquered people groups to do that. So it became a little bit of a misfit, hybrid nation. When the southern kingdom was exiled and they came back, they remained somewhat pure. So they weren't going to have anything to do with the northern kingdom. They, they, this is what we would call racism today if this was happening today. This is not a small thing. In fact, these Jews would say there are two kinds of people in this world. God's chosen people who are the Jews and the dirty, dirty dog Samaritans. And they actually said worse things than that if you did a little history. But now the gospel's doing something. It's not just making enemy friends. It's making enemies family. This is a huge moment in the pivoting of the gospel in the growth of the church's mission. And what it shows you and me is that if God can cross a line and come to people not like him to reconcile us, not to just be friends, but to be family, then we are capable through his spirit to go into people groups, group dynamics that are different from ours to see a church built for his glory. And the differences that we have with the other people groups not be something that gets in the way, but something that actually elevates the glory of God, makes God more glorious and more beautiful. A second question, which is a little bit more of a minor league question, not super important, but maybe somewhat important, is was Simon the magician, is he a believer or not in this thing? Unclear, to be honest with you. Some people believe he wasn't because of how Peter talks to him. I get that. Some say he was but just hadn't grown enough as a Christian to maybe kind of figure out how it all works. I kind of get both arguments. Listen, I asked a lot of dumb questions whenever I was a new believer. <laughs> Some of them probably dumber than this. I thought a lot of dumb things. I said a lot of dumb things. And I had people like Peter rebuke me for doing those things. But I was a believer. Listen, growth is sloppy. Is it not? Growth is sloppy. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when we're growing in a certain thing. Listen, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when someone becomes a Christian. Just to be honest, to be frank for a moment, for many people and many people in this room, salvation is a real moment, but it happens to be obscured and buried in a long season of a lot of questions, a foggy season. Salvation happens in a definite moment. There is a moment where you transition from someone who is lost to somebody that is found. That's not a moment that's spread out over six months. But sometimes salvation happens, although brief and real and definitive in one moment, it is buried inside of this season full of moments of belief and doubt and who knows what's going on. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when a heart is transformed. Some of you have admitted this much to me, right? Luke, I know I'm a Christian. I'm pretty sure it was in this semester when I was in college, but I'm not quite sure when. Maybe October, but maybe November? I don't really know. I just know December is not like March. I'm a totally different person, right? 
I, I, for me, I knew it was in a season, like it was winter of one year. I, I couldn't tell you exactly when it happened, but I know it did happen in a moment. I didn't get tingly inside. I think that's what we expect, right? And listen, if you got tingly when you got saved, that's cool. I wish it happened for me. I didn't tingle inside. I didn't have a warm sensation. I didn't have something in my brain that kind of flashed like a neon saying, you are a Christian now, right? It didn't happen for me, but it did happen, but it did happen. So I'm not sure about Simon. Apparently Simon believed or said enough to be baptized with others, right? Pass that test, whatever that test looked like. But he still definitely had himself in mind. He was selfish. So Peter gets in front of it and does what Peter does. And he's basically saying, repent for thinking about yourself in this. You're you're trapped right now. You're trapped. Ask God to forgive you for this. And if it's possible, God will rescue. But for now, you don't have any part in this. And so, so that's where some people kind of get off on different paths. We don't know if, the, if he is saying you don't have any part in this thing called the church or Christianity or you don't have any part in this healing ministry, this, this dispensing of the gifts of the grace of God's spirit. We're not quite sure. It's kind of vague here. I'll let you just do your own research on that and believe what you want to believe on that. I, I'm, I'm a little bit more on, he is a, just a, a very young and mature Christian camp. But again, like I say, I wouldn't get in a slap fight with anybody over that. I think the most important question we get to, the one that is begging to be answered in this passage, is what is the Holy Spirit doing in not coming to a people group while he did go to another people group whenever they confessed Christ only to come to this people group later on? What is going on? And does God still do that? That is asking for an answer. The brief punchline is these Samaritans were truly saved. They believed upon Jesus. Had a comet wiped them all out, they would have gone straight to Jesus. They were truly saved, but the Holy Spirit was not given here as he had been to the 20,000 Jews earlier in Jerusalem. And there's a reason for that. God is doing something different here. Very different. This is what we would call a non-repeatable hallmark event. There are a lot of those in the New Testament and the Old Testament. A lot of powerful and profound things that happened that are not necessarily normative today as we read when they happen in that hallmark moment. God used this moment to build a bridge between people that had not called each other family for over a thousand years. A thousand years. So Peter and John, they go to establish this merger. They're not verifying whether it should be happening. This is sometimes where we get off and how we see their role in this. The apostles, capital A, Peter and John, they're not roaming up and down the coastline investigating whether people are Christians or not. That's not what's happening here. They're not proofreading Philip's sermon notes and Stephen's sermon notes to see if they're really giving the gospel. They went to preside over the church as the gospel is moving across the tracks from one culture to the next. Because you got to admit, without this moment right now, there would would definitely be two different churches growing moving forward. Two different. There'd be a Samaritan church of Jesus and a Jewish church of Jesus. And then who knows, a, a Gentile church of Jesus. But it would be a schism that would not be repaired. For over a thousand years, they had built in different directions. Both groups claiming God is God. Why would they, why would they all of a sudden be together? Besides, how good is the gospel really if it allows enemies to remain enemies? It's not very good news anymore. Not in my eyes. Now today there are no more Samaritans, capital S, no more apostles, capital A. 
So when people are born again, there is no need for the Holy Spirit to emphasize a non-normative merger like this. We're in a different church age now, right? Now when someone is born again, they gain the fullness of the Holy Spirit, not after baptism, not at baptism, but when the heart has changed. We baptized two, two people yesterday and nothing magical happened when they came out of the water and they don't have to pray for something magical to happen down the line, right? The Holy Spirit overwhelmed them totally and completely when they believed upon Jesus with childlike faith. That had already happened, right? Again, if you have questions on this, I love talking about it. We could talk later, but I needed to move through those to get to what might be the big application of this, and that is that what we're seeing is the gospel going where we don't think it can go. And it's doing things we don't think it can do in moments that are not ideal. That's largely what we're seeing. And the Holy Spirit, by the way, is really good at that. We see Jesus saying something in John 3 to an educated, elite religious person. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And what we see is a picture of the Holy Spirit that will not be restricted. He, because the Spirit is a person, he will not be restricted by humanity. But it feels like he is. Between you and me, it feels like he can be restricted, right? Feels like for the Holy Spirit to do adequate work as we carry the mission forth as evangelists. Feels like we need to preach at the perfect time after a perfect amount of preparation, with the perfect quiet time that morning, in a perfect setting with no distractions, to a person who is perfectly paying attention for the perfect amount of time for the Holy Spirit to do anything. That's what it feels like. And to amplify this felt restriction is rejections that come, right? I don't know if you could tell, but this sermon today is an encouragement to you and me as missionaries who carry the gospel. We believe as a church that if you are a Christian, if you believe in Christ, and you're a disciple of Christ, you're also a missionary, right? Growing as you might be, but you are a missionary. And we struggle in how we evangelize and carry the gospel, especially when we feel like we are imperfect, don't have what we need, talking to people that are not perfect recipients in moments that are not perfect. And again, to amplify this is the restriction. I don't know about you, but I have memories of what I would say to Christians when they would come up and tell me about the gospel. I would always say, hey, I used to be religious. I'm not religious anymore. I'm an agnostic. And that was usually enough. That's not even much of a trump card, to be honest with you. But that would usually be enough to shake them off my trail. They wouldn't push past that. And and you might even feel uncomfortable maybe continuing the conversation past that, right? So there's usually no hesitations, no conversation to move beyond that, no questions being asked, that's it. We kind of do what the Bible says, we shake the dust off our feet. That's something that we see in Matthew 10. Christ says, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Listen, there are in fact moments where you do shake the dust off of your feet, there, that does happen. But that comes with their repeated, emphatic rejection of the good news, not by how they look, not by their outward appearance, not by their age, their their social standing, how much money they make, 
who they're attracted to sexually, none of that is reason to shake the dust off of our feet. It's tempting to do that though, right? Their personality, their cultural differences. It's tempting to let those steer the Great Commission towards people who look like us, that are in our group, that are perfect for the gospel that we're trying to preach. There's this cool passage in John 4. After he talks to this religious elite person, he goes and talks to a Samaritan woman, and it says this in verse 9. Stay where you're at. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then it says, For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Yeah, no dealings for a thousand years. No dealings. Who do you have no dealings with? Who is that for you? And do the best you can to think past skin color right now, although that's not insignificant, right? Who do you have no dealings with? Is it their age, their social status, their political leanings, their income level? See, the high-value moment here is that although there are millions of different kinds of imperfect people in this world, not just two, millions of different kinds, the gospel takes us just like patches from a cloth and seams us all together into one cloth. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is helpful because I see Samaritans everywhere. I see people everywhere that I think that's not, they're not like me. There's two kinds of people in this world. There's me and there's that kind of person. I see Samaritans everywhere. People unlike us who, have, who I'm tempted to have zero dealings with. And yet I know that the spirit ties us together. I will say not risking the gospel on those who do not look like you. That is again a death sentence for mission. The gospel goes where we don't think it can go. It does what we don't think it can do. And it does it in moments that we don't think possible. And so maybe there's a couple questions we can ask ourselves to maybe diagnose where we fit in a passage like this. One big question is what is it about others, not you, not you, what is it about others that feels imperfect for the gospel? Maybe they're LGBTQ and their ideology is overwhelming for you. It's intimidating for you. You don't know what to say. Maybe it's their religion. Maybe they are more religious to their religion than you are to yours. Maybe they're a generation away or three generations away. Listen, I'm 46 years old. And when I look, if I spend more than 16 seconds on TikTok, I'm like, what? I, it might as well be a different nation, different language, different culture, different everything. That's just because I'm getting older. Listen, add 20, 20 years to my lifespan, it's going to be 10 times worse. I know it is, right? I know it is. What is it for you? Is there a piece of you that when you're honest with yourself, you wonder if the wind of the Holy Spirit actually stops blowing and will not reach the person in front of you? We shake the dust off our feet. There's no way that person would respond well to Jesus. No way. So instead, we just wait for the perfect, approachable person to come along at the perfect time when we've had a perfect amount of preparation and memorized the perfect scripture references to say with the perfect order and, and, and do so in a perfect amount of time. What is it about others? Another question, what is it about you, not others, what is it about you that seems imperfect for gospel ministry? 
I'm just like you. I read a passage like this and it does not seem amateur or ordinary. It, 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 feels, like, it feels like Philip has a cape on with the work that he's doing. It feels like he just knows stuff I don't know. Like his seminary was a lot more impressive than mine. His education is. He's just, he's just a stud. And I'm not. I'm imperfect. And here's the truth. We are imperfect. All of us. We bumble our way through gospel conversations we say the wrong scriptures at the wrong times. We're answering questions they're not even asking, right? And we don't even have answers to the questions that they are asking. We could totally do a better job. We don't know enough. And we don't have the personality for it either, do we? We lack that. And isn't it true that there would be other people that would do a better job in that moment than you? Maybe they're gifted. Maybe they're a gifted evangelist. Of course we're imperfect. I'm sure of it. And yet... In this story, we have amateur, ordinary people in unideal situations planting the church in a hard place. That is fascinating to me. See, me and my bride and, and several others in here, we've been in church planting for just around 25 years now. In some shape or form, have been under the umbrella of church planting. And I came across a phrase maybe 15 years ago that was new to me. And it was when we tried to plant a church from our Tampa location in St. Petersburg, which is across a bridge, a long bridge. We tried. It failed. Long story, very short. It was a failure. We did the best we could. We didn't know what we were doing. It didn't work, okay? But I remember how we consoled ourselves afterward. I would hear this phrase that St. Petersburg was a graveyard for church plants. Hey, don't worry, man. That place is kind of a graveyard for church plants. I'd be like, oh, really? That happens? I guess that I guess that's happened before. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, man, yeah. Churches don't make it there. And I think, oh, okay. Like it's some special stitch of ground that church plants don't make it or something. But I didn't know. And then a few years later, I heard it about another city. Oh, yeah, Seattle. Yeah, man, listen, that's a graveyard for churches. It is? That's the second one I've heard of. How many graveyards are there in America? I mean, how many do we need? A, but there's two. I guess I'd have to stay away from those two if I wanted to see a church grown. And then I heard it again and again and again. Every city is a graveyard for churches. When we moved here to Knoxville, people are like, you moved here to do what? We moved here to start a church. <laughs> I got some news for you. And I'm like, don't tell me. Okay. It's a graveyard for church planting. Yeah, man, it's a graveyard. It eats church plants. Listen, I'm so tired of hearing that. Honestly, more than Samaria, more than Samaria, it's a graveyard for churches. Knoxville's not harder than Samaria. Your neighbor is not harder than Simon the Magician. Come on. I'm not convinced Philip is some hidden talent or some shooting star. I think he's an amateur. I think he's ordinary, and I'm glad for that. We're not told he's anything more than that. What we are told in the Bible is that the power to change hearts and rescue things that are broken, that belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to us to begin with. It's perfect that you're imperfect. It's perfect that you're imperfect. This is how Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the, unsur or show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then he says something a little bit more complete in 1 Corinthians 2. This would have been in a, in a letter further back in history to the same church. And he says, and I, Paul, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, 
which is what you and I think are perfect, right? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Fascinating. He says, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And I know what you're thinking, because it's the same thing I think whenever I read these passages. Yeah, but I'm not like doing exorcisms. I'm not doing healings. I mean, there was a power of God that they're referring to that's not like the power of God that that I I would walk around with. Listen, maybe, maybe. But I didn't have leprosy when I got saved. I had both legs right? No one pulled any demons out of me or anything like that. But I will say I was worse. I was a rebel with a stone heart, much bigger feet, much heavier lifting to see a soul come alive than just skin become clear. Without this miracle endowed Holy Spirit working through someone who was very imperfect but very courageous in the moment, I'd still be ruined. My salvation much more miraculous than a healing, much more. And this power belongs to God. This is why we see this in Ezekiel 36, 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, the Lord says, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen, let this encourage you. Let this encourage you. God changes hearts. We just deliver the mail. He does the heavy lifting. We just walk out in obedience. I think think God is teaching us a basic lesson here. That basic, ordinary amateurs are not just sufficient for the task, but they are perfect for the task. Perfect for the task. Maybe the last question we can ask before we get to the end of this is, what about the moment that seems imperfect? So maybe you are imperfect, and you can maybe get around that. Maybe others are imperfect recipients, but the moment itself, what about that feels imperfect for the gospel? Because here in this passage, Philip is on the run. I mean, this is not some situation where Jerusalem's like, you know what we need to do? We need to send a church to Samaria. Let's raise some money and get a really good core team full of just some studs, some, some really competent capital, and we'll just send a big church plant over there and we'll fund it. That's not what happened. They're running for their lives because of the persecution. I've got so many questions about this. Where, where did he stay? What did he do for money? What about his family? Did he have family? Who knows? I don't know. How was he handling his stress, his future? What was he doing? All of these are questions I would love to ask. No one would fault this guy if he just relaxed his grip on mission long enough to get his feet on the ground. You kind of get the feeling by reading between the lines he's living out of a bag, moving by the, by the seat of his pants. Not only that, I kind of also gather the feeling that even the reception to his evangelism came without the clear lines we all think are perfect. Again, back to Simon, right? He looked enough like a new believer, whether he was or not. He looked enough like a new believer to become baptized. And then Peter comes along later on and has his talk with him. 
And it makes you wonder if Peter pulled old Philip aside and had a conversation with him. He was like, hey, you know, you baptize this guy, right? Yeah, yeah, we baptized him like a couple weeks ago. <laughs> okay, I'm not even sure if that guy's saved, you know? I mean, there was not a clarity between the two. He was baptized, but he wasn't acting like it. None of this looks ideal and perfect, and yet, and yet, God blows across the landscape and works for his glory by his power according to his sovereign, clever, brilliant, creative mind. The big, the, the big takeaway is obedient mission. It's going to feel imperfect in the moment. You will not feel right for it. You will carry it to people you're unsure will even want to hear it. The timing will always feel unstable. The opportunities will always have a lot of distractions. Nothing will seem ideal. That's how it is. And yet, in the midst of this, God moves in power. And not just through our skill and gift, but despite it. And people don't need to even look like you or be in your group. The gospel goes where we don't think it can go. It does what we don't think it can do in moments we don't think are possible. And this is just how God's always done it. He's always shown great power in impractical moments, like a tomb. It's not practical. Or a womb, for that matter. Jesus came to a very different people who would despise him, not for just a thousand years, but since the garden. Since the garden. And he came to those people not in his group. I mean, don't you wonder, when Paul says he desired to be all things to all people, where do you think he got that? Got that from Christ, who himself came to be all things to all people and yet was rejected by all people. He was firmly rejected. He was not seen as perfect. This is what we see in Isaiah 52. A lot of people call this the fifth gospel because it's so deliberately speaking of Christ. But it says this in the back half of the second verse. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. It can't be any clearer. When he came, he took the form of one who didn't look perfect. He looked unideal. For the task. He didn't look sufficient. It wasn't impressive. Didn't have any esteem. Didn't have any majesty about him. And he came at a difficult time. A difficult time in a, in a difficult stage of history. Into a difficult town. In a difficult family. In a difficult frame. Nothing is ideal. And yet, and yet God still works in power when nothing looks ideal. The gospel is perfect for failed people. But my encouragement to you is the gospel is also perfect for failed gospel tellers, evangelists, missionaries. It's perfect for those of us who struggle on mission just as much as it's powerful for those who are receiving it. It's this beautiful moment where you fail, where you find rejection, shake the dust off of your feet, go back into the moment, Struggle with whether you should shake the dust off of your feet. Go back. Push through the objections. Answer questions. Weep. Pray. Try again. Persevere. Get rejected again. Over and over again. When that happens, you grow. You grow. That's what discipleship looks like. I could give you a book, if you, but that's how you grow. Because excuses have to die. Self-preservation dies. 
in this form of evangelism. The worship of comfort dies. Prejudices die. Because here's the thing, the world is going to have questions you cannot answer. That's true. But what matters is that you have an answer to the question that it really needs an answer to. You know, when we were listening to testimonies yesterday, we had three people come up and give testimonies before the baptisms. And when Nick Roth got up and spoke, he was talking about one of the things that was a real big pivot for him in his life was not just the question of who is Jesus, and I'm using my words, not his, but who is Jesus to me? Who is this guy to me? Why are you so fascinated by this guy who lived, died, and lived again? I mean, who, what, is that, what does that mean for me? That's a big question. And even though they're not asking it, they're asking it. Those who are far from God, who is Christ to me? And then probably after that question, the most beautiful question that has ever been asked in the history of man is what must I do to be saved? Listen, there are two kinds of people in this world. Jesus and those who need him. And I need him. And you do too. And so does this city. So I think we have an opportunity to repent together for our lack of trust that God is sufficient for his own goal of blowing across the landscape and changing the hearts of all people. We have this opportunity to repent from giving into fear and unbelief about who God is and what it is that he is building through us. And listen, if you're here or if you're watching right now and you are far from Christ, as you listen to something like this and you investigate God and you examine God, let me make clear, you are also being investigated, interrogated, and examined by God yourself. And that's why you have so many questions. Maybe not even about God, maybe about yourself you have these questions, right? Questions like, what is life? Why does anything matter? Do I have any purpose in this world? What happens after this life? Does any of this matter? You wouldn't be asking those questions if the Holy Spirit wasn't already leaning in. God is in the business of changing imperfect people in unideal lives. And if this is you, you are ideal for Jesus. And he's perfect for you. He's perfect for you. Listen, there will be a day when we carry only the redeemed parts of our culture into this space and this time before the Lord Jesus to meet everybody else from other different cultures. And only the redeemed parts of culture will go with us. But the unredeemed parts that keep us from being good community, those will burn up. Those will be gone. There will be Samaritans and there will be Jews, there will be Russians and there will be Ukrainians. But the distinguishing difference is are there only to the point that they show and elevate the glory of God. Everything that is imperfect, dirty, or man-powered will fall away. And I look forward to that day of no caste system, no racism, where there is one song from diverse people. One song. But until then, we can at least trust that the gospel will go where we don't think it can, doing what we don't think it can do in moments where we don't think possible. That we know. Amen.